The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Awesome. Good to see you guys. How you doing? Doing all right? So we are continuing on in our uh, Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew 7, so go ahead. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible right underneath you or close enough. You can go ahead and grab that, open up to Matthew 7. Uh, And Jesus is finishing up his sermon. So uh, Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7. And Jesus, we are in 7, but Jesus is wrapping up his sermon. So the last couple weeks, we've been talking about how Jesus is bringing uh, to conclusion this sermon. And it's important to realize that because Jesus isn't switching topics at the conclusion of his sermon, that he is, he is clarifying what he's been talking about through the whole sermon here. And that is this, that Jesus calls us to commitment. He calls us to a choice. And all the sermon has been unpacking is the kingdom of God. We see in Matthew 5, Jesus is unpacking what the kingdom of God looks like. In chapter 6, he's talking about the difference in the, between the kingdom of God and, and the Pharisees, right? And how we give, how we fast, how we pray. And now in, in chapter 7, in the latter part of chapter 7, he's saying that there is a call to commitment. What is it going to be? Where are you at? And so he talked about that the, there's a narrow path and there's a broad path. Narrow gate and a wide gate. There's many on the broad, few on, on the narrow, and one leads to life, one leads to death. We've talked about that there are two different kinds of, of prophets, right? There's a false and there's a true, and you can tell them by their fruit. And Jesus is going along, he's saying, listen, you are called to make commitment. Where are you at? He's clarifying these things. And so we, we come to today, and today is probably one of the most difficult and one of even the scariest, I think, passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. And so... God's word sometimes cuts us. It's intended because sometimes in order to heal, you have to cut. I remember when I was a kid, I was running around and uh, I was chasing our dog. I got a needle stuck in my toe. It It was crazy. It hurt really bad, but it broke off and you couldn't see it. So all you saw was a pinprick on my big toe, and it swole up for days. It got so big and huge, and we couldn't figure out what in the world was wrong with it. Right, and so I mean, my mom made me soak in Epsom salt, and I'm sitting here trying to squeeze. It, it just was, it was a horrible situation, and uh, and finally we got into the doctor, and you couldn't tell because it was below the surface, but there, sure enough, was a needle the size of my big toe stuck right in there, and they had to cut it open and get it out. But in order to heal, in order to take out what was going and what was sending my toe awry, what was giving me so much pain, is that they had to make additional cut. They had to cut it open and they had to take it out in order to heal. And sometimes that's what God's word has to do to us. Sometimes it has to cut us. Sometimes it has to reach into our heart and lay it bare in order that it would expose what's the pro- what the problem really is. And so I think that that's what this passage does for us today is that it reaches into our heart and it exposes some things in order that it might heal us, in order that it might reveal what's going on so Jesus can come and restore. So we are going to be in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and read along with me. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name 
and cast out demons in your name and do, mighty many, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Uh, this is a, a very heavy passage. So there's a, a big idea that clarifies this, that's going to guide our time today. It's this, is that we can be deceived about our connection and relationship to Christ. We can be deceived about our connection and our relationship to Christ, and that our assurance of our salvation, our assurance of our relationship, is found in our union and our obedience to him. It's found in our union and our obedience to him. And so we're going to look at four warnings, the outline for this passage, if you wanted to follow along. We're going to look at the four warnings that are found here. Jesus comes and, he, and he's warning us. And so there's four warnings, and then there's two promises. So four warnings and two promises. And let's go ahead and, and dig in. So warning number one, not everyone enters the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone enters the kingdom of heaven. Don't be deceived. There is an eternal reality about where each person is going. We live in a culture where it emphasizes the journey and not the destination, and there's a reality between, but behind every journey. Every journey leads us to a destination, and Jesus says that there are only two destinations, and that you will either enter to eternal destruction or you will be on the path to eternal life, and that there is a reality behind that. It's not just smoke and mirrors. It's not just a game that we play. It's not something we just talk about. But there is a reality that is going to come and is going to appear and is going to happen to each individual person. There's a reality about where we go when we die. Hebrews 9.27, it says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. After we face death, there is a period where we will stand before the judgment of God. And so there's, there's reality behind that. And what should this do? This should cause urgency in our lives. This should cause an urgency in our lives. I mean, think about your to-do list. You have things that are urgent, maybe paying bills, maybe meeting with somebody. You, you make priority. You, you put time and energy into what you think is valuable. If you have something important for work, guess what? You're going to put the time into it because it matters. It's important to you. How much should the eternal destiny and the eternal reality of your own soul matter to you? And so this should cause an urgency in us, not only for ourselves, but also for others. And so it shouldn't be something we're relaxadaisical about it. Now, we know that we can't ultimately save people, but we know that God would use us as vessels. And so this leads us to be urgent, not to be apathetic, not to be complacent. Now, and the second thing I think that this should do in us is it, it should make us value relationships. It should make us value relationships far more than we do. So often we discard relationships as temporary or as trivial. And what this says, it says that the only thing that's going to endure forever is people. C.S. Lewis talks about that you and I, we never encounter a mere mortal. That every person that we encounter is eternal. And that they will live their eternity in one place or another. That they will either become a, a hellish kind of creature that rejects God and rejects everything that is good eventually, or they are becoming a heavenly kind of creature. One that is submitted to God and embraces everything that is good. And so you and I, we don't encounter normal everyday people. And so that means that the most important thing in this world are relationships. And so therefore, we should value them. We should care for them. We should not discard them or treat them lightly. We should, we should love deeply. 
and consistently. And so relationships should be of utmost value in our lives, our friendships, our family, our coworkers. That is what we should spend our time on, is thinking how we can love and be caring to one another. Second thing is that we see that Christ is more concerned with the commitment of those who follow him over the quantity. Christ is more concerned with the commitment of those that follow him over the quantity. And this is something that's very difficult in our culture because a lot of times uh, the American church is very concerned about getting a crowd. We really want and we feel that we're successful because we have a large audience that's gathered. And you see, Jesus, Jesus had a large crowd often. The irony is that when he got a big crowd, he whittled it down. <laughs> So, I mean, you look at John 6, and there's a big crowd, and he says, okay, you want to follow me? You need to eat my, uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they all start leaving him, right? You get a big crowd, and he says, if anyone, any, any of you want to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Forever would seek to save his life will lose it. And so Jesus draws a crowd for sure, but then he calls them to commit. That's why you see that out of that, you have 12 I mean, Peter even turns to him and says, you know, everybody's left Jesus in John 6, and, and, uh, and Jesus says, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter's like, well, where else are we going to go? You know, I, I don't, I don't, we, we can't go anywhere else. Who has the words of eternal life? You. And so Jesus isn't as concerned about the quantity as he is the commitment in those that he calls. Now, don't get me wrong. God's heart is one of love, and he does desire, he's patient, desiring that none would perish. But he does not sacrifice his call to commitment simply for the sake of quantity for crowds, and neither should we. We must realize this is Christ's call in our lives, and this is Christ's call in others' lives as well, that he would call them to commit, call them to follow him fully. And I think this should lead us to a question. Are you entering the kingdom of heaven? Are you entering the kingdom of heaven? You see, each one of us personally will stand before God. We will not stand corporately before him. We will not be able to say my mom or my dad or my brother or my friend or I knew the pastor or any of this. Each one of us will stand. And there's a reality, even right now, with where you are going. Do you, are you entering the kingdom of God or not? And so this, is, should call, this should cause us and call us to examine ourselves, to take pause and to think and to ponder because Jesus says that either you will enter into the kingdom prepared for you by my Father, or you will depart from me, for I never knew you. And hear this, when he says, depart from me, this is exactly what hell is. And, and it's, it's interesting because in the latter part of Jesus, as Jesus starts wrapping up his sermon on the mount, he starts talking about the reality of hell. More so than he does in, the, in most of the whole sermon. But he's emphatic now in the last chapter of 7. He starts talking about the reality of being departed from him, being separated from him, because he's calling people to commitment. He's saying there's a reality behind your choices. They have consequences. Whether you commit to me or you don't commit to me, there are consequences behind each decision. And so he says, depart from me. And that is what hell is. is hell is, uh, is being separated from the presence of Christ. And it always strikes me, I'm always amazed at how people that wanted nothing to do with Jesus in this life all of a sudden think that they're going to want to spend eternity with him. Right? I mean, isn't that, isn't that, I just find that, like, ironic. Like, hey, I know that, like, for, I don't know, the last 70 years of life, you want nothing to do with me. And you still don't when you die. But, like, all of a sudden, you think that you're going to, like, want to kick it with me for eternity. You know, th- that just doesn't, that doesn't compute. And so, now, don't get me wrong. There are times where the thief on the cross, where people at their deathbed can come to know Christ, where they can commit to him and fall in love, and, and God saves their heart. 
But what we choose to serve and what our God is in this world is going to be our God for eternity. And, and, and this leads us to think that the time is short. The time is short. Is that you do not know what tomorrow brings. Neither do I. You don't know whether tomorrow you'll be alive or whether you'll die. And it's a, we don't want to think about that. That's a sobering thought, but it's reality. And I've experienced it, I'm sure you have, too many times. And my hope is that it doesn't surprise you. Is that that day does not surprise you. 2 Corinthians 6.2, it says, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so often we hear the invitation to respond to Christ, and we think, I'll put it off. I'll wait till I'm ready. My heart's not quite there yet. Or we think, as this pastor talks about, we're deceived. And we think, well, it would be awkward for me to respond to Christ because people already think that I'm a Christian. And hear this. He says, when the Lord responds, when the Lord pulls in your heart, it's the moment. Because the longer you go without responding to Christ, the harder your heart becomes. And, it, and Romans 1 talks about that at a certain point, God will give you over passively. He'll give you over to your, yourself, give you over to your own sin. And that's the worst thing, is that when God says, if that's what you want, okay. After we've rejected his call, we've rejected his invitation so many times. And so he says, today is the day of salvation. Respond. When the Lord convicts you, when he works in your heart, respond to that. Move. Time is short. The other thing I think when we see about the first warning that not everyone enters the kingdom of heaven is that we see that Christ is a judge. Christ is a judge. Oftentimes we think of Christ as right. We think of him as Savior. We think of him as teacher. We think of him as Lord, or we think of him as miracle worker. But what this passage teaches us is that not only is Jesus all of those things, but ultimately Jesus is also the judge. And so John 5, verse 26 through 29, it says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. All right, I'm going to go on a tangent real quick. This is a philosophy thing. Lots of times, non-Christians will say, hey, you know, um, who created God? You ever heard that question? Who, who created God? And, uh, and that's a, a terrible question because God's self-existent. It means that in the very definition, in the very nature of God, that he can't help but to exist. And that's what this says, is that he has life in himself. Is that hit, part of being God is that you are self-existence. And if you're not self-existent, you can't be God. So therefore, to be God, you have to have been eternal, to have been forever. All right, tangent over. Um, Verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus, Jesus is a judge. And I think this, this means three things. First, Jesus knows everything. When he is talking to the people in this passage, they, they say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? And he is able at that moment to pierce in. He sees. He sees not only their heart, but he sees the reality of their lives unfolded before them. He sees what they're beginning from their end. He sees every moment. And so Jesus knows everything. There is nothing that we can hide from him. And it is foolish for us to think that. Sometimes we think, well, I can't come forward because of this this sin or this mistake, don't you know God already knows it? God knew it before you committed it. God knows the sin that you will do far after you, like far from this point. He knows what you're going to do in the future. God knows all of these things. And it also means 
that we will have to stand for account. We'll, we'll stand to account for the things that we've done, that while we can hide them from man, while we can, can deceive others, you know, and Charles always says you can, you can deceive the pastor, but you can't deceive the master, right? I mean, you can deceive the people around you in leadership, but you cannot deceive the Lord because he sees and he knows everything. And so the things that we think we've hidden, we will have to give an account for. Not only does he know everything, but he's also everywhere. His presence is everywhere. And this is so tangible, I think, for us, is because when Jesus isn't just with us sometimes, but he's with us always, then it means that our sin is in a far greater reality. Jesus is in our presence right now, but oftentimes we only think that Jesus is with us when we feel him. Right? When I, I have this emotional connection, then Jesus is really with me. Listen, Jesus is with you always. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He is always with you. Now, he chooses to allow you to feel his presence more in certain occasions than others. But he's always with us. And therefore, our sin is, is solely and, and, and firstly against him. Because he is the one that dwells inside of us and always with us. And therefore, he's closest to us. And our sin is primarily against him. But Jesus is also the final judge, is that he is the final arbitrator, that he stands and he renders a final verdict, declaring what is right and what is wrong. One of my, as a pastor and getting up here to teach, one of my primary jobs is I want you to be prepared. Is that you're, you're sitting here and you're listening to this right now, and I've, I want you to be prepared for the day that you face the Lord. There's going to be a reality that you are going to stand before God and I want you to be ready for that. I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to walk in false assurance. I want you to walk in truth, and I want you to be ready for the day that you stand before God. And so the warning number one is that not everyone enters the kingdom of heaven. The second warning is that not everyone who confesses Christ as Lord enters the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who confesses Christ as Lord enters the kingdom of heaven. Do you know the hardest people to reach for Christianity, the hardest people to convert, are the people that think that they're already saved? That's the hardest people. I, I grew up in a, a Baptist church, and a lot of times they made this uh, delineation between Savior and Lord. And so you had people that would come forth and that they would ask Jesus to save them from their sins, but they would never actually turn and repent and follow him as, as leader of their life, as king. And so now you have in your 20s, 30s, 40s, people that are walking in outright rebellious sin, have no conviction of sin, don't have any desire to repent and turn from sin, but yet would tell you, I'm, I'm a Christian, but there's no, no vision or no fruit in their lives forever. They walked an aisle, they prayed a prayer. And so that's false assurance. And, and he says that that's oftentimes the hardest people to reach because they don't know. And here's the thing, Christ loves you enough to where he confronts. He confronts because it's the most awkward time to sit down with somebody that says that they're a Christian and actually say, do you really know the Lord? Because there's defensiveness, right? There's, there's massive defensiveness, there's justification. And so Christ is, is lovingly loving enough to where he will stand and he'll, he'll talk with you and say, do you really know me? I want you to, to know that. The second thing we see is that entrance into the kingdom isn't based upon the words of our mouth. Notice in the passage, it talks about that they will say to me, that they will articulate, that they are able to say all of these things. And notice that what they say, right? That they say, Lord. And here's the reality that our words, our words can either hide truth or they can reveal truth. 
They can either deceive others or they can bring others into the light. Our words are only as good as the heart that brings forth those words. And so you can be around someone and they can tell you all the right things to say. I mean, the Pharisees would have easily said all the right answers, but yet their hearts were far from God. And so you don't enter the kingdom of God because you know the right terminology, because you say the right things, because you're able to go to church and you're able to spit out $5 theological words. That doesn't grant you entrance into the kingdom of God. We also see that entrance into the kingdom isn't ultimately based upon our orthodox doctrine. It's not based upon true theology. Now, hear this. These are people that, that they are confessing with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now, what does Lord mean? If you go back in the Old Testament, so the first name that God was called was Elohim. That was the first name. And then God gave his intimate covenant name, Yahweh, to his people with, with Moses. Well, the Jews translated that into the Greek, which is called the Septuagint, and that was what most of the Jews used around Jesus' day. Often they used the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. They translated that word Yahweh into Kyrios, which is Lord. And so when people are articulating, they're saying, Jesus is God. These are people that have extremely fa- sound theology. I mean, they are, they are very biblical. And, but he says they, they come and they acknowledge Jesus as God, they say that he is Lord, but yet they don't have entrance into the kingdom. And so he says that just because you believe the right things doesn't mean that you will be with him. Our third, well, James, James 2.19, I think, reinforces it. It says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Don't you realize that just because you have sound doctrine doesn't make you different than demons? Demons have great theology, they just don't, they don't submit. Their lives don't reflect what they, they know that he's sovereign. They know that he's in control. They just don't like it. And they rebel against it. And so you can believe all the right things and have your heart still be an outright rebellion against God. And so warning number two is that not everyone who confesses Christ as Lord enters the kingdom of heaven. Warning number three, not everyone who confesses Christ as Lord and has an emotional experience and connection to him will enter the kingdom of heaven. An emotional experience doesn't guarantee our relationship with Christ. Hear this. When he says, they call me Lord, Lord. Why, does he, why do they say that? They say it twice. They will come to me and they'll say, Lord, Lord. Well, whenever you're writing, you know how you want to emphasize something? You write in italics or you like underline it a bunch of times like I do, or you put in like in bold things and a little star on the side. Um, you know, you do all these things to kind of say, hey, here's the emphasis. This is really important. There's emotional connection. This is what the Hebrew, this is what Hebrew did, is that they would double it for, for emphasis. Is it, and well, they would also triple it to even reinforce connection, but doubling connotes this, this emotional connection. You see this with David when he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, when Absalom's rebelled against David, the king. You hear this? In Jesus' words, when Martha is going and she is busy in the kitchen and she won't sit at his feet, and he says, Martha, Martha, are you not troubled by many things? And so these are people, when they say Jesus is Lord, it's not just that they have some cold theology. They have had an emotional experience with Jesus. They've had some kind of emotional connection. But Jesus says, listen, your relationship isn't based upon simply an emotional connection. It's not something where, man, I, I, I listened to a sermon, I felt moved. 
I felt moved by this sermon one time, and I felt maybe convicted. Or I was in a worship service, and I just felt very overcome, and I was passionate, and maybe I even cried. Or I was in a conversation with someone, and I just, I felt touched by their conversation. Jesus says that you can have emotional experiences, but that emotional experience, it doesn't mean that you'll enter the kingdom. Because that's what, they they clearly had an emotional experience. Warning number four. Not everyone who confesses Christ as Lord has an emotional experience and connection and has an amazing and has amazing ministry success and miracles will enter the kingdom of heaven. And has amazing ministry success and miracles will enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, listen, hear their resume. I mean, I'm impressed by their resume. I mean, they come to them and they're like, Lord, Lord, did we not do many miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform miracles? Did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, right? I mean, they're saying that they've done this in Jesus' name. And what does Jesus say to them? What does he not say to them? He doesn't say, you didn't do that. I mean, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, I, I never saw that. You didn't do those things. They did those things. They prophesied in his name, cast out demons, they performed miracles, and he turns to me and says, I never knew you. That is a humbling thing. Because here's, Jesus is not saying that these aren't important, right? He's not saying, listen, just throw out orthodox doctrine. What does it matter what you believe? He's not saying that at all. He says orthodox doctrine matters. It's important. What you believe about God, it, it, it matters. It really is. Emotional experiences, yeah, those are good things. You shouldn't be like, I'm aiming for a very cold and distant relationship with Jesus. Right? That's, not, that's not at all what Jesus, he says emotional experience is good. Ministry success, yeah, it's great. Demons come, you cast them out, that's a good thing. I mean, you prophesy, you teach about God. I mean, you see miracles happen, all great things, all good things. But that ultimately doesn't dictate whether you have a relationship with him or not. Jesus here is saying that he's more concerned with his grace than in our giftings. I think one of the things also that we learn from this is that there's not going to be any excuse that's going to suffice at the last judgment. There's no excuse that's going to pass you by. I don't know about you, some of us are crammers for tests. We, uh, we wait till the last minute, and then we just like hurry, and we rush, and we rush, and we rush. But the test clarifies, and ultimately, here's the reality, is that there's not going to be an excuse that we're going to give that's going to fly by the judgment of God. And that's a sobering thing to know, that we're laid bare. We stand, it says we stand naked before him, but it's not so much physically as it is spiritually, relationally, is that everything that we have done is, is, is thrown out, is thrown out before God, and it's all very clear. Have you ever had that experience where you know you've done something wrong, and you've got, like, a lot of excuses for it? You're like, all right, I just, I've got my justification in hand, and I'm going to bring it there. And the person just, like, I mean, they just lay it out so clearly that you're like, that was really silly. I shouldn't have even thought that I was going to get away with it. And that's what it's going to be like. We're going to stand before God, and all of these excuses, all of these justifications that we thought, well, that person here, or, well, God, I did these things in your name. I look at how many times I went to church. I read your word. We're going to use in all of these things, and it's going to seem 
silly. We're going to realize that all of these things were simply justifications for the sin that we had committed and that we stand guilty before God. There's not going to be any excuse that's going to suffice. 1 Corinthians 13.5, it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now this sermon, this, this text is penetrating. What it's intending to do is it's intending to help you to examine your faith. Because what this is doing is, is Jesus here is talking about what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. Right? The third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Most of the time we don't understand what that means. We use it and it's very trivial. We most think, I shouldn't swear with Jesus' name. Shouldn't say, GD, I shouldn't, you know, use God's name in, in, in a curse word. You, can I tell you, that's the very superficial meaning of what that commandment says. What that commandment really means is that it means that we don't take the name of God in unreality. Because the name of God has power. Names have power, right? Think about this. If you're going for a high-class restaurant and you know that there's no way that you're going to get in, but you go and you do what? You name drop. Well, hey, I know so-and-so. And so-and-so told me, you know, maybe you know the governor or maybe you know some famous person and they're going to get me in. Or maybe you go for a job, right? You go for a job and you know that normally you wouldn't get this job, but hey, I know the vice president. And so so-and-so told me to come and interview here, right? Your name dropping and that name has power, right? That name has power. Or maybe this, I think this is a, maybe a better example. You have two kids and, uh, and, and they're fighting with one another. One is on the inside of the door and has it locked. And the other one's on the outside knocking on, like, let me in. And they're arguing back and forth. One's saying, you better let me in. The other one's like, I'm not letting you in. Good luck. You're stuck on the outside. And, uh, and they go back and forth for a couple minutes. And then the kid on the outside says, dad told me that you better let me in. And all of a sudden, the door opens and the kid enters. <laughs> What's happening? Well, that kid on the outside, he is using the name of the father Right? Why? Because the name of the Father has power. And the name of the Father opens doors. Now, there, there, there's a reality. Either he used the name of the Father truly or he used it in vain. What happens if dad comes home and the, and the kid says, Hey, you know, Tommy told me that you told him it was okay that he should come in. And dad's like, I didn't tell him that. What's going to happen to Tommy? <laughs> it's not going to go well for him. <laughs> right? He used the name of the Father in vain. He used it in unreality. When you use the name of the Lord, what does that mean? It means that, one, that you have a connection to him. You have a relationship with him. That he knows you and that you know him. But not only that, it also means that he approves of your behavior. Right? What if Tommy knows dad? I mean, clearly they have a, a resemblance. They have a connection, family. But what if his behavior is not in line with the father? You know, he's actually in time out and he's directly disobeying the father and going and doing that well, then he's still using the name of the Father in vain because the Father was not approving of his behavior. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Is he saying that there are people that say, Lord, Lord, and that they do all these things, but they are using the name of the Lord in vain. Is that they're using the name of the Lord in unreality because the Lord's name has power. It is able to open doors. And I can't help but think of Judas. Judas was with the Lord for all three years of his ministry. When Christ sent out the 12, when he sent out the 70, 
Judas went with them. You don't hear, you don't hear this in the Gospels. Man, everybody cast out demons but you, Judas. Like, everybody was able to perform miracles but you, Judas. No, like, Judas did ministry with them. He was able to do the same things. Why? Because the power of Christ and his name, it's to, it, it is able to open up doors in this world, in this universe. There is power in it. You see it. One of the, the funniest stories in the Bible is in Acts 19, you have Paul is casting out demons. You know, he, he's in Ephesus, and there is, like, revival happening. And, uh, and these seven sons of Sceva, apparently they were exorcists. They practiced, like, casting out demons. And they're like, listen, this Paul guy, he's got some power. Like, he's using this new power. It's in the name of Jesus. And so they go, and they go to cast this demon out of this guy. And, uh, and they say, in the name of Jesus, we tell you to come out. And... Uh, <laughs> It didn't work out for them as well as it worked out for this guy in the passage, but because the demons said, listen, we know Jesus and Paul we've heard of, but who the heck are you? And they turned, they beat him, and he leaves, and they, they all left naked. So it's, it's not good when you enter in a fight with clothes and you leave the fight without clothes. You lost. Like, that is, that is a bad ending. And so we see that the name of the Lord has, has power. It's able to open up doors, but we can use it in reality or in, in reality. We can use it in truth or in vanity. And so we've talked about the warnings. Jesus warns us because he loves us. Now there are two promises. There are two promises. First, those who are relationally connected to Christ will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who are relationally connected to Christ will enter the kingdom of heaven. Our assurance of our salvation comes from our union to Christ. Our assurance of our salvation comes from our union to Christ. If you're, ser- if you're here, well, how, Trevor, you're telling me that I can have the right belief, I can have emotional experience, I can do lots of ministry, and I can still not have a relationship with Jesus. How in the world do I know that I am a Christian? How in the world am I to know that I'm saved? Well, there's an objective way and there's a subjective way. The objective way is because, of the, because you have union with Christ. There is a reality that Christ died for your sin, that he was buried and they rose again from the dead, but you must respond to that. There's a reality, and what this means is that there is grace given to you and that you are called to respond and to receive that grace. We see this in all kinds of different ways in the Bible. John 3, Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him at night, and Jesus tells him, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must have a second birth. And this is this idea that you have a relationship because now your father is God. You've been born again. He, in Matthew 18, he's talking, uh, and they're little children. He says, unless, hear this, this is a condition, unless you become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And what does he mean? He means, well, I've got a little, little kid right now, and he, ain't, he can't do anything. I mean, like, all he does is sleep, eat, poop, cry, and he, he, you know, and so he doesn't do anything. He is totally dependent. He's entirely dependent, and he knows that. Right? I mean, he knows when he gets hungry, all he can do is cry, and then he, you know, gets milk. And so he is entirely dependent, and it says this is what we have to become like, is that we have to realize that we are fully dependent upon the grace of the Father. And this is what it means, is that there's a reality that Christ died for your sin was buried and rose again from the dead that you might have new life and that you have either you have either received this grace and you either stand in this grace or you don't and you try to establish your own resume your own performance by your own works 
And so you either receive him or you reject him. And there is a reality behind this. We are grasping grace. And how do we do this? Well, it looks like faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. They're two sides of the same coin. Faith, it means that I am embracing, I am holding on to something or someone. It means that I have transferred trust from myself to someone else. And repentance means that I am changing my mind. And so when we come to Christ, when, we're, when, we're, when we have, are far from God, we're holding on to our sin. Whether it's our own ability, whether it's our selfishness, whether it's our, our relationship, we're holding on to that thing. And it's what our, our source of contentment, our source of pleasure we're finding. We're putting everything into it. And he says, in order to come to me, in order to be born again, in order to receive me, you have to let go of it. That's what repentance is. is it, it, it's letting go and turning. Faith is then embracing embracing Christ. You see, you can't, you can't hold on to sin and then hold on to Christ. You can't. Christ says you have to let go and turn. And then when you are free, you embrace. You embrace. And that's what faith is. is faith is this embracing of Christ. And he says that that's, there's a reality that happens in that moment that you are, you are one with him. You are unified to him. And that brings assurance that there's an objective reality that says, I have been born again. I am of Christ. Now, the second promise. Those who are obedient to the will of, of his Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who are obedient to the will of the Father. And Jesus says this, those who obey my Father in heaven, they are the ones that will enter. Now, our assurance is seen in a life continually surrendered in obedience to the Father's will. Hear this. This is not moral perfection, right? Some of us, we have a very... Uh, our, our conscience is easily pricked. And so every single little sin pops up into our mind. And hear this, Jesus is not saying that you need to have moral perfection because then we wouldn't need the gospel. So we are all broken. We are all in process. What this is about is it's about a, your heart in your sin. When you sin, how does your heart respond to sin? Does it take sin side and fight Christ? Or does it take Christ's side and fight sin? Is it seeking to be obedient? And this is not, works by salvation, right? He doesn't say, listen, in order to be saved, you need to do these things. He says, no, when you are born again, after you've received Christ, it's going to change your life. So you begin to do good works. So you begin to do things that please the Lord. Now hear this, the father has a will. He has purpose. He has commandments. Sometimes we get in this idea that God is, we have a deistic idea. God's over there. He created everything, but he's kind of distant, God has a clear, specific will, and he, we can know whether we're following it or not. God's not left us in this gray zone, this misunderstanding of, how do I know? God's given us clarity about whether we are walking in line with him or whether we're disobeying him. And so let me ask this. What happens, what happens in your life when God's will crosses your will? That's, that's one of the clarifying things that shows whether we are truly born again. What happens in your life when God's will crosses your will? Who wins? God or you? Now, let's just talk about a couple ways in which God has specified his will. We can't talk about all of them, but I just want to say a couple. What happens when Christ calls you to forgive other people as he's forgiven you? When someone's wronged you, when someone's hurt you, when someone's done something difficult against you, and, and Christ calls you to forgive them to the extent that he's forgiven you. Do we justify? Do we 
Do we say, well, God, you don't know what they've done to me? Or do we realize the extent to which he's forgiven us and turn and forgive? What about when he calls, when he calls us to love others as he has loved us? You see, it's not always negative, it's positive. Christ is calling us to go out. He's not simply calling us to stop doing certain things. He's calling us to act as well. And he says, are you actively loving other people as, as I have loved you? Is your life marked by love? Because he says, this is how the world will know that you are of me. What about when it comes to speaking the truth to others? When he calls you to go to someone that you know is, it's going to be difficult to, but to speak the truth to them. Are we bold enough? Do we trust him? What about walking in purity in our sexual lives? Saying Christ, when he, when he says, listen, you're not, you're not to look at pornography. You're not to lust after another man or woman. You're not to have an emotional affair with someone else. When his will crosses our will, does he win? This is not, once again, this isn't talking about moral perfection. This is talking about our relation to sin. Do we hate sin and take Christ's side? Or do we love sin and fight against Christ? What about what we do with our finances? When Christ would call us that we don't need the newest thing. When he would tell us to sell something. When he would tell us to give with a joyful heart. Do we argue against him? God, you don't know. I can't do that right now. Or are we obedient to him? Do we say, God, it's yours. You've given all of it to me. It's not mine. Freely I have received. Freely I will give. What happens when God's will crosses our will? You see, when, when we never obey, when God's will crosses our will, then he's not really Lord. He's just a consultant, right? Like, hey, God, when, when you tell me to do things I like to do, then we're cool, you know? I mean, like, we get along great. But, uh, but when you say things that I'm not so excited about, like, I might just consult your opinion. What do you think about it? Oh, okay, that's, that's a nice thought. I'll come back to you next time. You know, he's, he's a consultant, not, not Lord. And, and that shows that maybe we don't really have relationship with him. Because Jesus comes as a king, and that's who he is. And so we see that there's two ways of obedience, right? There's two ways that we can obey God. We can either obey in order that he would love us, or we obey because he does love us. And man, do you see that God loves us before we have done anything to earn it? He loves us first. And it's because of his love towards us that we obey. It produces a life of obedience. There's two ways we obey. And so some of you here are maybe in doubt, right? You're, you're here and you're like, well, listen to her. I don't know. I mean, some of you are, there might be doubt in some of you because you're genuinely not a Christian. And that's what this text is intended to evoke is it some of you are here and you've maybe grown up the church, you know this, and you're genuinely not a Christian and there is doubt evoked in your heart because God wants to save you. He wants to peel back the mask and he wants to show you your heart and he says, come to me because I desire that you would have life. Others of us, you're genuinely a believer. You are. You know the Lord. You have union with him, but, but you're having doubts right now and it's because God is putting his finger on sin in your life because he's highlighting areas and he's saying, when my will crosses your will, you're not fully surrendered to me. And I desire that you would have freedom. And so the application is that you need to confess your sin. You need to confess your sin to the Lord, but you also need to walk that out into the light. When we don't walk it in the light, when we stay in the darkness, we will continue to be haunted by that sin. And so hear this, the Lord wants to free you. He wants to free you. And then some of you, you're, you're here and you might be having doubts and you might be struggling. 
And it's because you have an overactive conscience. And I want to remind you, I want to remind you of the promises of God, that God is faithful and that he does not forsake those that come to him, that he is a good shepherd. He loses not one of those that the father gives to him. And so as we, as we close, I just want to read this song. It's, a, it's a, how firm a foundation. And just listen to the words here because I think this gives assurance to our souls. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more, he, what more can he say than to you he, th- he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. When through deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee thy trouble to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not harm thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus doth lean for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.